Welcome everybody, I'm Richard Krauss. I hope you're staying happy, I hope you're staying healthy, and I hope that you're staying safe. A little bit later on, we've got a really cool panel for you. We have blogger, columnist, and media personality Perez Hilton, Francesca Bacardi, she's the senior reporter at page6.com, and reality television personality Roxy Earle. And we're going to discuss the public's appetite for gossip. With Britney Spears and so many others in the press now talking about how gossip in the newspapers and on television has affected their careers and lives, I thought it would be really interesting to put together this panel and just have at it. So that's a little bit later on in the show. First up, though, let's meet Kat Goldman. She is one of Canada's most celebrated songwriters. She's also the author of a new book called Off the Charts, What I Learned from My Almost Fabulous Life in Music. You can find that book wherever you buy fine books. You can learn what it's like to meet your first fan, date a rock star. She says, never again, uh, perform in a grocery store and rebuild your career after getting hit by a car in a bagel shop. All that is in the book and more. Let's meet Kat Goldman. Everybody knows, everybody knows, everybody knows I've got the best drugs on the block. Oh my love, look at what you started. Let's start at the beginning. What inspired you to write this book? Well, I uh, have a, a friend who's a fan of my music who has a radio website blues and roots radio and he asked me if i would write a blog for it about my experiences as a songwriter and this was a couple years ago and as soon as he asked me something just clicked it it all made sense and i came up with the concept in about 24 hours (laughs) to start a blog called the disgruntled songwriter and every week i would write another blog and uh, it was just a lot of fun and when I had enough blogs, I decided I really should turn this into a book. And you tell all sorts of different stories, kind of the, the stuff that we don't see on Entertainment Tonight or the stories that you don't read about in the newspaper, stories about performing in grocery stores, <laughs> uh, about rebuilding your career after being hit by a car in a bagel, outside a bagel shop. So let's talk about some of those experiences. How did performing in a grocery store come about for you? I, someone gave me the gig. It was, it was a well-paid gig, although I was supposed to bring my own microphone and I forgot one day I got, I was fired because I didn't bring my own microphone one day. Um, But yeah, I had this gig on the second floor balcony playing to everybody in the fruits and vegetables section of Loblaws. And I, I, I can't say I made many fans from that mm-hmm. gig. I think it was just background music, pretty much. But what do you learn from a gig like that? Is there a life lesson to take away from it? Hmm. Um, I mean, you just sort of take whatever gigs you can, especially mm-hmm. if they're well paid. Um, you know, sometimes people want just background music. It's sort of hard to be playing your own original music at a Loblaws gig. Mm-hmm. You know? So I would pull out the Simon and Garfunkel tunes and, you know. And I think you, you probably learn that uh, how to entertain an audience that isn't necessarily there to see you. And that there's got to be something, there's got to be some sort of takeaway in that. Yes, I think any gig you have, you have to see it as an opportunity to build strength as a performer, strengthen your voice even, 
strengthen your confidence. Um, so everything um, contributes to that, no matter how crappy the gig is. You know, sometimes you'll be playing to two people in the audience. And I, I, I call those practice gigs, you know. Yeah. Well, I, I host a lot of Q&As and things. And I remember one time doing a Q&A, we arrived and there were more of us on stage than there were in the audience. And um, <laughs> normally that's when you cancel the gig. And one of them, who was a fairly well-known director, said, you know what? There may only be three people out there, but they paid money and they went to the show. Let's do it anyway. Oh, absolutely. You have to respect every person in that audience. Absolutely. What's it like to meet your first fan? Well, I think the first time somebody actually asked me for my autograph, I sort of chuckled to myself. <laughs> I couldn't believe, you know, that they really were being serious. Um, but it's very meaningful when someone comes up to you after a gig and says, you know, your song really touched me or I can really relate to what you said. Then, then you sort of know that your job is done. You know, you've done your job. Well, there's that idea that songs have this life that goes on without you. You you birth them, and then someone ends up playing it at a funeral, or playing it at a wedding, or it's the song that they first dance to on a date, or something like that. And these are things that that you're not specifically responsible for, but it is kind of an interesting life that your work is out there and touching people. And uh, a number of songwriters have told me that the, the greatest compliment isn't, oh, I love your song, but we played it at our wedding or we played it, you know, it always makes me happy because it makes me think of my late uncle or whatever it might be. And that has to be gratifying. It, it really is. Um, don't ask me why, but one of my songs, Annabelle, just a simple little folk ditty I wrote about my grandmother who had passed away, has reached so many people around the world. And apparently people have named their children after the song. Wow. <laughs> um, somebody got a tattoo with, you know, the lyrics to Annabelle. So, you know, it's it does have a lot of meaning when it becomes universal. You're listening to my interview with Kat Goldman, author of Off the Charts, What I Learned from My Almost Fabulous Life in Music, available now wherever you buy fine books. One of the stories you tell in the book is uh, to never date a rock star. You don't have to <laughs> I, name names if you don't want to, but uh, tell I me won't. that story. Well, it's just, you know, you, you, you stay in their, their loft overnight and then the next morning they'll be drinking their coffee and, and you'll say, can I have a coffee? And they'll say, oh, did you want a coffee? <laughs> you know, and then they, they kick you out to the curb with all of your luggage and say, it's good to be on the road, you know. <laughs> so my advice would be to never date a rock star because uh, they can be so selfish. <laughs> <laughs> looking back over uh, the stories in the book and looking back over a career, has it been uh, useful for you to use humor as a way to, uh, to, to frame these stories and to present these stories? A hundred percent. The whole fun for me in writing this book was being able to joke about the music industry. Um, you know, when in reality, all those years, there were a lot of painful experiences. Mm -hmm. um, but I'd always, I, I'd always wanted to write comedy. 
I, I never wanted to do stand up because I figured that would be very, very difficult. Um, but this was a way I found to have a, a comic voice in talking about these experiences. And I just wanted to make people laugh, really. You know, we, we, we need that right now. Absolutely, we do. Uh, even when you talk about rebuilding your career after getting hit by a car, I love that the little detail that you throw in here is that it was at a bagel shop, which, I mean, it's a serious thing, but yes. that little detail yes. says that it's going to be treated with a lighter touch. Absolutely. I, it was very hard for me to write that chapter because it was obviously a very traumatic experience that changed my life in many ways. Um, but I wanted to treat it lightly. Um, and there were some funny elements to the story. I mean, I, I actually called out to the cashier as I was being crushed and waiting for the ambulance to come. I said, can you please make me a bagel with cream cheese and Lux to go because I haven't had anything for breakfast and I'm starving. <laughs> And did you get your bagel finally? I didn't get my bagel because apparently there were a couple of nurses there, fortunately, who said, don't feed her anything because you, you need, if you're going to have tests at the hospital, you need to have an empty stomach. Of course. So good thing they didn't feed me bagel with luck. <laughs> Let's talk a little bit about uh, feeling the sting of rejection, which is something that all creative people do, uh, and how you deal with that. Uh, is it one of those things where I have always felt that if you fall down six times, you get up seven, and you just keep trying over and over again? What's your way of, of dealing with any kind of rejection that you might get? Rejection is, is devastating. Um, uh, it builds a thicker skin, I think, as time goes on. And, um, you know, it's hard because I think artists and especially songwriters are inherently quite sensitive people. Um, and so, and yet they're working in an industry that's quite crass and tough. Uh, so, so my advice would be to go back to the music, to go mm -hmm. back to the source, go back to writing the songs. You know, that's, that's the moment where you really connect to what you're doing and, uh, and where you find joy again in all of it. Have you found that there may be a difference between uh, working as a woman in the music industry, which has been male dominated, which uh, still to this day, I think probably there's very few uh, female executives making decisions. Uh, have you felt the sting of sexism in your career? Oh, hundred percent. I remember gigs where I'd be opening for a high profile male co-bill and, you know, they'd be coming on to me before the show and then they ripped me off of my money at the end of the show and um, all sorts of uh, all sorts of things uh, like that happened. Um, of course, now I'm 50, so I'd be happy if someone came on to me before a show. <laughs> a little attention would be good at this point <laughs> that was Kat Goldman check out her book Off the Charts what I learned from my almost famous life in music wherever fine books are sold let's meet Paul Schaefer now did you know that It's Raining Men the 1982 disco hit by the Weather Girls 
is part Canadian. The upbeat song, which was just inducted into the Canadian Songwriters Hall of Fame, was written by Donna Summer's songwriter Paul Jabera and the Toronto-born musician and former band leader of The Late Show with David Letterman, Paul Schaefer. I caught up with Paul on the phone from Los Angeles to talk about writing the song, but also to dig around a little bit, find out what it was like to be a session piano player and arranger during the disco era. Here's Paul Schaefer. <laughs> Well, congratulations on having your song inducted into the Canadian Songwriters Hall of Fame. Thanks so much. It's a lovely honor. It really is. It's so meaningful because it's, I don't know, just just a, a lovely thing for, uh, from one's home country, you know, to to acknowledge a song that I wrote to with Paul Jabara, the late great. Well, at the time you wrote It's Raining Men, you were working as an arranger, you were a freelance piano player working in recording studios. Can you tell me about that kind of life? Because I would imagine that from day to day, you didn't really know what you'd be working on. It was new every day almost. Yes, tremendously exciting for me. And when I look back on those days, it really was the most fun. And you, you know, you were sort of... Um, being judged every day too, you know, you had to, yes, you had to come out successfully, you know, and, and make some music that was acceptable, uh, regardless of what it was going to be. And you had to, you know, sometimes you had to make it up yourself. Sometimes you were reading it note for note, uh, you know, that's where that somebody else had written. And then also I, I was doing some arranging too. Uh, it was the beginning, well, it was, you know, the disco days mm -hmm. in the 70s. There were lots of uh, disco, lots of disco music me being made in New York. And it was orchestral, too. It had strings and horns and stuff like that. So I got a lot of uh, experience doing that. Oh, and I used to work a lot for, in fact, the guy who really got me started in that studio business was named Ron Dante. D-A-N-T-E, he was the voice of the Archies and sang um, Sugar Sugar. Uh, but then he became a producer, most notably of Barry Manilow, uh, earliest records, uh, including I Write the Songs. Uh, and I used to work for him some t a little bit on those records, play second keyboard to Barry. And also other projects that Ron would have, like this guy Paul Jabara, who came to him as an artist and wanted to re record a song called One Man Ain't Enough. Mm -hmm. So you can see he was already sort of, uh, already had his sense of humor in place. And I arranged that for him. One thing I remember was very long. These, these disco tracks were long for being played in clubs. Now, you know, they're all made by computers. Then we had to play for like a six minute, seven minute piece and stuff. And the string chart, my goodness, you know, I had to stay up all night to do that. One man. for Last Dance in Hollywood, which he wrote for Donna Summer. Mm -hmm. He came back to New York and called me and said, you know, you work so hard on my stuff as an arranger. Why don't we, I'd love you to compose one with me. And that's when he told me that he had this title, It's Raining Men, in mind for Donna Summer. Well, let's go back just to One Man Ain't Enough for a second, because 
I've heard this song. It didn't chart, I don't think. It didn't do well, I don't think. But it's a really oh, good song. Oh, I don't song. even think I admit it, but not even been heard at all. I don't know what the label was. But yes, yeah, so go ahead. But it's a good song. Uh, you can find it online. Uh, it's a good song. And I think what appealed to me about it, and it's what you were just referring to, and the thing that probably made them a little difficult to record, was that there's real drums on them, it's real instruments, there's no electronic sounds on that record, and it feels organic, and I think that makes all the difference uh, when you're listening to those records, those disco records of that era. Well, of course you're right, there's a big difference uh, between real musicians playing and and the computer playing, and of course today we the, the audience prefers the sound of the computer. Mm-hmm. It's perfect. When you're a certain age, the, uh, the music that's out, that's what you love. Right. But that one man went enough. Well, the, the year might have been 1974. Yeah. Pretty early, and you know, an early piece of work for me. I was just feeling my way through. Maybe not the first string shot I ever wrote, but certainly one of the early ones. You're listening to my interview with Paul Schaefer, the Canadian songwriter behind It's Raining Men, now being inducted into the Canadian Songwriters Hall of Fame. It was the first time I met Will Lee, who played bass, and he became my longtime bass player on Dave Letterman's show mm-hmm. much later. Uh, we hit it off, though, and the guitar was the brilliant Jerry Friedman, no longer with us, but uh, really did popularize that uh, percolating uh, single-note guitar style that was so prevalent at the time. I remember everything about that session. Sure. You, you, well, I guess it was significant for you. It was, a, it was a big one. You would have been working with lots of interesting musicians, certainly Will. He went on to work with for decades uh, a little bit later on, so... That the the first cut, I guess, is the deepest. You know, when you when you're first starting out, you remember those details so well. Well, and also, you know, the fact that I was I was just getting started. One of my first arrangements, but the players that come in are top notch. Mm. Will was already first tier uh, studio musician back then. Second keyboard to me was a guy named Paul Griffin who. I didn't even know I was in the presence of such greatness, but this is the guy that played on Like a Rolling Stone, the piano. Oh. And it was, as well as American Pie, all that great piano and stuff. And he was playing right beside me, you know. And, and you were saying, Mom, I'm not worthy. You're really saying to yourself, I'm not worthy. When you hear what they do with your chart. But boy, it's great, you know. That's a, you realize I want to do this again. Well, what shape was It's Raining Men in uh, when Paul Jabara brought it to you? Um, was it completed almost lyrically, or was it a series of ideas? What what was it in? He had phrases, actually. He had the title, and he had uh, a lot of the phrases. He, he Phrases like, um, rip off the roof and stay in bed. You know, he had... He had a list of them. I'm going to put that in. He was very excited about it, as was his style, you know, and that's why it was so great to write with him, too. Uh, But another one was, um, you know, I'm going to go out, I'm going to let myself get absolutely soaking wet. He He had these little couplets, lyrics. And that's what he had. So he was, he was ready to go. He even had God Bless Mother Nature. She's a single woman, too. These were, you know, coming to him. He was writing them down. He was ready, and he had them in his arsenal ready to go when we got together.
It only took a number of hours to put this song together, and I'm always amazed when I hear about songwriters that say, oh yeah, no, we, we wrote this in two hours, and yet 40 years later, here we are still listening to it. Is that your memory of it, that it went fairly quickly? It was an afternoon. Mm. Uh, that's it. And then we spent it, and then we made a demo of it, a wonderful demo. I don't even know if I could lay my hands on it now, but even the demo was great. Uh, he got a singer that he knew that I knew too, Lita Galloway. I'm no one, but boy, did she sing a magical version of it. Um, so um, I don't know. You know, I don't consider this is really one of the only, one of the very few songs I've ever written. Uh, but I understand that many songwriters say the good ones come fast. Well, this is uh, Carol King. You got a friend. She said, "Oh, you know, half an hour. You got a friend. Stuff like that." And I guess that was our experience. Uh, Paul, uh, you know, his his method of writing was fast, though, and energetic, and that was kind of part of the magic. You get, you know, you have a success with with a little rhyming couplet and it goes with the music, it inspires you. Oh, then you get another one, you know. That's kind of the way the process Now you say, and I've read this in an interview with you, that the the process of songwriting uh, is something that, although I tried it, just doesn't agree with me. Um, How so? Why doesn't I I, I see you can play anything, uh, it seems like, any style of music. uh, You've played with so many people. I would have thought that songwriting would be a natural extension of that, but but why doesn't it appeal to you? Maybe it's just that I need that immediate uh, reinforcement or you know reward of getting to play. I just love to play the piano yeah. and play songs that I like. Learn them. I don't know. You know, I've been doing it since I was a child, and that's what gets me off. Sitting down with Paul Javara, I mean, of course. Uh, it's so it's wonderful to all these years later be in, inducted into the Canadian Songwriters Hall of Fame for that song. But it was, you know, it, it, it's work of a type that I guess I never got used to. It certainly is work, and it, when it comes out, you get your your uh, reward. You know, when you hear it. But when you're playing, you know, uh, you're getting it right away. I, I think it's as, as basic as that. Well, you played the the demo that you made for your then-girlfriend, Kathy, and she was always a severe critic of yours, you say, uh, and she didn't really like it that much. She hated the song, um, which was hilarious. And um, because I knew, I don't know, maybe it was because Paul was had won an Oscar or, or maybe it was because Lita Galloway sang it so great, but... This little demo, I was so proud of it. I said, listen, honey, listen to this. Uh, this may have something. And she just went, ugh, what are you? <laughs> and, and so, no, she was never never a major fan. But I think now, you know, it conti- it pays the phone bill now, I think, the song. And so I think she's come along, come around. She may like it a little better now. Uh, after 40 years, it, it, it grows on you, I suppose. <laughs> now it was originally written for Donna Summer. She didn't record it. Uh, why? Uh, I've heard that she was uh, newly born again, and she objected to some of the lyrics. Is that how you remember it? Well, whatever it was, she didn't like it, and she didn't. She didn't like the lyrics, especially, and she didn't like it. You know, when it said "Hallelujah, it's raining men," she she just didn't didn't like it. She thought it was disrespectful. 
perhaps blasphemous, and she didn't uh, she didn't want to do it, although we had written it specifically for her because Paul even you know knew things about her style. She likes the whole long notes. He said to me, so we, you know, so you notice the song has a lot of long notes in it, just for her. Um, but not only did she hate it, everybody else hated it too. Paul Jabara, during his Hollywood time, and I got, and just being a musician on the scene, he knew all of the wonderful female singers uh, who were around, and uh, they all hated it. Uh, Patty LaBelle, uh, Diana Ross, I think they all heard it and passed on it. Streisand, for whom he wrote, uh, you know, Enough is Enough. No, hated it. So, luckily, it didn't. You know, he was running with it. I was, at this point, I, you know, got the job on Letterman Show around 82. You're listening to my interview with Paul Schaefer, the Canadian songwriter behind It's Raining Men, now being inducted into the Canadian Songwriters Hall of Fame. I'm a little foggy on the chronology, but um, at one point he called me up and he said, I've got, uh, you know, I'm going to debut the song here in Central Park on Gay Pride Day. And I said, you don't even, you don't even have a vocal on it. He had, he had just recorded the instrumental track. That's how much he believed in the song. Yeah, you know, I'll get somebody to sing it live, you know, and, and that, that's uh, what he did. And eventually he thought of these two girls. Um, Martha Wash and Azora Armstead, who had been Sylvester's backup girls. Yeah, yeah. So, so, Sylvester, an early disco performer yeah. uh, out of San Francisco, and they worked for him, uh, and, and they were known as Two Tons of Fun. <laughs> uh, they were large in physique yeah. um, and proud of it. Anyway, they were amazing gospel-type singers, and Paul knew about them and put their voices on it and, and changed their name to the Weather Girls. And it's, uh, you know, uh, luckily for us, a song clicked that we didn't have, a Streisand or Donna Summer. Now, did you know, and I just found this out from doing some research about the song, that it's Homer Simpson's favorite song? <laughs> I was unaware of that, but I very much appreciate it. Out of pulling your favorite song out of the jukebox. <gasps> it's raining, man! Yeah, not no more, it ain't. It may be just be a little inside joke that I was unaware of. Thanks for telling me about it. Now, uh, I wanted to ask about doing the song uh, with uh, Martha Wash in October of 2012 because i've seen the original time that you had the weather girls on the band on the stage on the letterman show which was in when the when the song came out and then in uh, 2012 you had martha back to sing and it was a much different kind of production there were partially naked men hanging from the ceiling and dancers and the whole thing but it looked really exciting and it it looked really fun do you have memories of of doing that yes um, of course I do. The first thing is, the, the first appearance that you mentioned, which was back in the 80s, when the song was speaking, you know, on the dance charts, mm-hmm. we had them on. Um, Paul, came, you know, uh, came with them. I had never met them, but it was just the two of them, and they were going to just, they were going to play with just the four of my four-piece band, which was the way we were doing it when we 
first came on the air. We we didn't augment the band, you know. We we uh, we didn't have the budget or the room or anything. So we just had the two girls, us four guys playing a, a simple arrangement of it. No background singers at all, and that's of course a big part of the record. Mm. All the gospel voices in it. We had nothing, just the two of them, and they pulled it off. Uh, it, in in fabulous style, and I and I remember Paul Jabara was beside himself with excitement, and he was his plan was to be in the audience, sort of inciting them, and it, to be you know inciting their excitement. And I was worried about this a little bit. What is going to happen here? Because this man was was uh, you know nothing if not flamboyant. <laughs> But somehow he had developed no got a diagnosis that day. You can't make a sound. You have nodes on your vocals. <laughs> so he managed to do the inciting silently. May have been best for all of us. And he, you know, he ultimately had the notes taken off, and yeah. and he was fine. But there was that story. And then later, here was thirty years later, and Dave Letterman became aware of it and said, well, we've got to do a big production number on it. And so then we did have, we did have a little budget and we got dancers, yes, guys who worked on those things, silks, they call it, right. hanging from the ceiling and they were coming down on those. Um, and uh, Martha, of course, singing it, still sings it amazing, singing it totally live, with, which we did sort of, uh, in honor of the old days, and um, and my goodness, that was uh, that, that was a fun one too. It's Thank you so much uh, for taking the time to talk to me. What a what a pleasure! It's been fun, and I appreciate it. And thanks for you. You certainly were thoroughly researched. <laughs> I was surprised, but I, I had a lot of fun. Oh, good. Hope to meet you sometime. Absolutely. Yeah, I, I hope so too. Okay. I look forward to. See you later. Thank you very much. Bye. Thanks. It was so much fun to talk to Paul Schaefer. I hope you enjoyed it as well. Find "It's Raining Men" on a jukebox near you. Now, have you seen the documentary Framing Britney Spears? It's great. It's on Crave right now if you haven't seen it. It's the New York Times produced documentary inspired by the hashtag Free Britney movement, and it takes a long, hard look back at the role the paparazzi and media played in Britney's career. I found it interesting, and I wanted to explore it a little bit more. So we put together a panel. Here's blogger, columnist, and media personality Perez Hilton, Francesca Bacardi, she's the senior reporter at Page6.com, and reality television personality Roxy Earl to discuss the public's appetite for gossip. Let's start with why so many people can't get enough gossip. Why do you think that is, Francesca? I think it's because it's just an easy distraction from everything else that's going on in the world. It's mindless entertainment. Whether or not it's a positive or negative story is sort of irrelevant at this point. I think it's just a break from all of the madness. And it's something that people can either use as a guilty pleasure or as just sincere enjoyment. And Perez, how do you feel about it? Why, why are people drawn to it? I think we as animals are born curious creatures. That's why whenever there's an accident on the street, if you're driving, people slow down and they look. It's just in our DNA. And it's also 
uh, aspirational to a lot of people. They may not be happy with their lives. They want to fantasize about living like a Kardashian Jenner or dating that person and going all over the world. It's fun escapism. It's like McDonald's. <laughs> and Roxy, are you a consumer of the uh, gossip columns and gossip websites? I mean, a little bit when they're not writing about me. Yeah, <laughs> it's fun to kind of watch other people's lives and just see their life be a little bit more of a train wreck than yours. <laughs> <laughs> and Francesca, people can be judgmental about gossip, despite the fact that most people do it and most people like to hear it. How do you negotiate that contradiction when it's your career? Um, you know, it's sort of not my job to negotiate that contradiction. <laughs> my job is to to report the gossip. I mean, it is what it is. Like you said, we gossip in our everyday lives. Mm -hmm. Kudos to those who don't. <laughs> um, but it, it is a little bit of a pastime for most people. And so I think, yes, when I'm writing a story that's not necessarily positive to the person I'm writing about, it's unfortunate it's also not really our problem. And I think Perez Hilton would agree that, you know, if you don't want to, you know, if you don't want to end up on page six, don't do it. And Perez, do you agree? Um, well, yes. <laughs> and also, <laughs> you're speaking from your perspective. My perspective is that of a child of Cuban immigrants. And in the Latino community, the word gossip is chisme, to chismear, to be chismoso, and it doesn't have the negative connotations that it does in Anglo North America. In the Latino community, you want to gossip, you need to gossip. It's about being informed and everybody wants to be in the know. You don't want to miss out on anything. And my mother was the biggest gossip there was. I talk about it in my new memoir. She knew everything about everybody from the neighbors down the block to the parents at my school. And I absorbed that. And I think it's one of the reasons why I ended up doing what I do because I don't view what I do as a negative. Well, it's in your DNA. Yeah. It's part of you. Uh, Roxy, you've said some people love me, some people hate me, but nobody forgets me. Does that unforgettability earn you good or bad press? I mean, for me, it's all good, so yeah. I'm not complaining. <laughs> but I mean, everybody, everybody loves to hate someone who everyone loves. So I know that my moment might come, and if I go down in a blazing glory, I hope it's exciting and everyone watches. <laughs> <laughs> Who goes on TV if they don't want all the attention? Come on, those girls are just totally full of it who say they don't like negative press. I'm like, don't go parading down the street in Carolina Herrera and then complain about it when everyone looks. <laughs> <laughs> Perez, do you have celebrities who will simply not talk to you no matter what you do or say because you once wrote something terrible about them? Yes, absolutely. You know, celebrities oftentimes have very fragile egos. They hold grudges and it's okay. They don't have to forgive and forget. Many don't. I mean, just last year, I was on the TV show The Hills where Misha Barton confronted me about things that I had previously written about her. I saw I, this. I, I saw yeah, I've learned, to, I've learned to accept, as the years have gone on, that many people 
will only choose to see me as the person that I was 10 years ago, even though I've grown and am now doing things differently. Mm -hmm. I can't control how people see me. I can only control my own words and actions. You're listening to my gossip panel. That's blogger, columnist, and media personality Perez Hilton, Francesca Bacardi, senior reporter at page6.com, and reality television personality Roxy Earle. Francesca, have you ever regretted anything that you've posted about a celebrity? Yes, I have. Um, we are in changing times, mm -hmm. and I think there has been in the past some body shaming, and I have been the author of some of those articles, which now looking back is embarrassing and cringy because that's not what we should be doing at all. We're not in the business of body shaming. We're in the business of gossip and entertainment. Um, so there are definitely stories along those lines that I wish I never did. Absolutely. Uh, Roxy, we live in kind of politically divided times, um, the most divi the divisive times that I can remember. Um, do you think that we're seeing a backlash now because of that against celebrity culture? I think, if anything, celebrities have all the spotlight on every word they say. I think things have gotten wildly out of hand that everyone's terrified to even speak because of cancel culture. Um, but you know what? The celebrities that all had their moment where they got to bring it in and let it rain from all the attention, I really just don't have a lot of empathy for them complaining about how their words are being meticulously picked apart right now. And do either of you have a, a, a thought on that? When you uh, look back at something that you may have written, quoted someone uh, years ago that maybe they now regret, uh, do you think that it is advisable that it's okay to erase that, to scrub that, or do they have to, do celebrities have to be accountable for everything that they've said? I am a fan of letting people grow and forgiveness. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, not everybody agrees with me though. An alarming trend that I have seen this year is people getting, quote, canceled mm -hmm. for things that they did many years ago. I'm not talking about myself, although I'm probably applicable to that, uh, but you saw it on the TV show Vanderpump Rules here in the United States. Two cast members were fired over things that they did three years ago that the show and the network Bravo knew about. In the YouTube space, Shane Dawson got canceled over things that he said and did before, even though he's apologized repeatedly for it. Uh, I also think that Nobody can ever really be canceled. Just look at Mel Gibson. He's got a new movie coming out. If Mel Gibson can still work, then nobody is ever truly canceled. That was blogger, columnist, and media personality Perez Hilton, Francesca Bacardi, senior reporter at page6.com, and reality television personality Roxy Earl talking about gossip. My thanks to all of them, as well as Kat Goldman. Check out her book, Off the Charts, What I Learned from My Almost Fabulous Life in Music, wherever fine books are sold. And to Paul Schaefer, whose song, It's Raining Men, was just inducted into the Canadian Songwriters Hall of Fame. My biggest thanks, as always, though, goes to you for listening. I'm Richard Krause. Stay happy, stay healthy, stay safe, and we'll talk again soon.